This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'll be discussing human adaptation to high altitude and aquatic environments. And I'm sure for this audience, a slide like this is rather familiar, where we're looking at distinct patterns of variation within our species. And specifically for this talk, we're looking at how population history or natural selection impacts the variation we see today. So I am working in a physiology department where we're often thinking about components and subcomponents of physiology. And we really are interested in these systems when things go awry and result in some sort of disease. However, on the other side of the coin, we can look at adaptation to particular environments. Um, some examples of that include sickle cell disease, skin pigmentation, and even lactase persistence, which we've heard about in previous CARDA symposia. And in these cases, we have some examples of what we refer to as convergent adaptation, where two different populations, in this case of European and African ancestry, are able to digest milk into adulthood, and individuals perhaps with a certain skin pigmentation are maladapted to a, a particular environment. So these classic approaches in physiology can be very useful for looking at traits in human populations as well. And then thinking about genomics and sort of the parallels with physiology here, we're looking at pathways and networks. And again, we pay attention to these systems when they result in disease. So when we're looking at studies of disease, we need thousands of cases and thousands of controls uh, to identify genetic targets. However, if we're looking at studies of adaptation within our species, we can capture enough information from 25 individuals to really pinpoint some of these genetic factors. And then we can link those back to the physiology, as in all of those examples I showed you previously. So we can use a lot of these novel tools to answer long-standing genetic questions. So there have been many studies completed in populations throughout the world showing genetic signatures of selection, so for today, I'll be focusing on high altitude um, and also populations that have adapted to diving, so aquatic environments. So we'll start by discussing some of the work um, that we've done in areas near Mount Everest and Machu Picchu. So I've stolen that from our National Geographic grant, um, but really just going to a lot of these villages to try to understand adaptations and maladaptations. Now, high altitude environs are really one of the most extreme regions that humans have occupied and lived at for thousands and thousands of years. So if we think about populations in the Tibetan Plateau who have been there anywhere to up to 30 to 40,000 years, the Andean Altiplano for 12 to 14,000 years, or even the Ethiopian highlands where people have moved into and out of high altitude and intermediate region, intermediate altitude regions for um, tens of thousands of years. So each of these populations provide a natural experiment for examining the human response to hypoxia. Now, if we look at just a snapshot of these different traits, right, we could have a sojourner, somebody who's visiting altitude, or some of these other highland populations. And if we compare different traits across these groups, we can see that there's really a collection of unique traits, right? There isn't just one thing that's different, but really uh, a, a number of different factors to consider. And I should point out, these could be adaptive or maladaptive. 
Now, one of the traits that's been most extensively studied is hemoglobin concentration. So if I look at hemoglobin concentration, again, hemoglobin being the molecule that transports oxygen throughout the blood um, in male and female Andean individuals, you can see that the levels of hemoglobin are much higher at this high altitude, so 4,000 meters. The range that you would expect to see here in San Diego or at sea level is shown here in red, but if many of us went up to high altitude, we would increase our red blood cell production as well. However, when you look at the Tibetan population, we see that their hemoglobin concentration is comparable to what you would expect at sea level, even though they're at 4,000 meters. So clearly they have some mechanism to maintain lower hemoglobin, even though they are at high altitude. So let's start by talking about the populations in Tibet, so 4,200 meters above sea level. So we set out with a hypothesis that there would be certain genes involved in altitude adaptation, specifically those involved in hypoxia sensing and response, and this is the hypoxia-inducible factor pathway. It controls hundreds and hundreds of genes within our genome. And then we perform two different types of tests for selection. So we generate these list of selection candidate genes, and what we're really interested in is that overlap of functional candidates, things that we think might be involved in adaptation, and those that are showing this really striking pattern in the genome. So what does that pattern look like? Well, we refer to it as a selective sweep, and if I took a, pop a population, say, from hundred, several hundred generations ago, and we looked at their genome, and we lined up a single segment of their genome here, and compared it within the population, we might see that these black dots representing the, the variants that we have compared to a reference really don't show a particular pattern. However, if there is an individual who has a beneficial variant and that variant increases over time, so again, hundreds of generations, um, and can eventually become fixed within the population, it leaves behind this really striking pattern in the genome. And so we can look at that pattern to find these incomplete or complete selective sweeps. Now I've been showing you cartoons over here, um, but really these are the actual data that we obtained from Tibetan individuals. So again, just lining up their chromosomal segments at these particular regions revealed that there was in fact a selective sweep at some of these hypoxia-inducible factor pathway genes. And hopefully you can appreciate when I show the Han Chinese genomes that there is a very stark contrast. And so there is definitely a signal that we're seeing in the Tibetan genomes. So next we wanted to test whether or not these genetic markers were associated with a particular phenotype, in this case hemoglobin concentration. So what we found was in fact that with more copies of the adaptive region, an individual tended to have a lower hemoglobin concentration. So interestingly, we have now been able to look at whole genome sequences, where before we were just looking at those single variants or those flag posts throughout the genome to pick up those patterns. But once we look at the whole genome, we were able to find that, in fact, there were some archaic variants there. I'm sure many of you have actually done 23andMe, and perhaps you know your Neanderthal profile. I tried to look that up for the fellow speakers, but I only came across Joanne's. I don't know who Joanne is, but she has 300 Neanderthal variants, and that's 82% more of other 23andMe customers. What you might also learn about is your Denisovan profile. So this is another archaic population. And in fact, there are regions of the Tibetan genome that are more similar to this population than any other human population. And so 
What's been interesting to find is that some of these adaptive genes are within these regions of archaic introgression. And in fact, this is one of the regions that is linked to hemoglobin concentration as well. So why is it that there is relatively lower hemoglobin concentration in some individuals? Well, we wanted to look at oxygen utilization. So we decided to have our participants complete a VO2 max study. So this is peak VO2 on the y-axis and hemoglobin concentration on the x-axis. And what I hope you can see is that individuals with lower hemoglobin concentration tend to have a higher peak VO2, which is a bit counterintuitive perhaps for some um, competitive athletes. And maybe some, some people might be interested in how to better utilize oxygen in certain situations um, and perhaps even for some of the running that, that can be done. Um, but in all of those cases, it's really just a slight advantage or a slight increase uh, of hemoglobin that makes a big difference. In these highland populations, it's sort of a different story where we're looking at a really wide range of variation and very strong selective pressure. So here we see lower hemoglobin is associated with increased exercise capacity. And so we were interested in looking at how this relates to the entire oxygen transport cascade. So just to remind you, lower hemoglobin concentration is associated with adaptive changes in Tibetan's DNA and increased exercise capacity. And when we dug a little deeper, we found that in fact, heart and muscle function as well as ventilation uh, were very important for this exercise capacity finding. And then thinking about this breathing or control of breathing in these populations, it's been known for a while that the hypoxic ventilatory response, this is one of the characteristics I had shown in, in the earlier slides, uh, is really distinct in the Tibetan population. They appear to maintain an elevated response uh, compared to others, including their Andean counterparts. And this is something we're working on with the original authors of this study uh, to figure out if there is in fact a genetic basis to this. So now to switch over to talking about some of the populations in the Andes that we have studied, um, and we feel very fortunate that they have been so interested in, in working with our team over the years um, to complete a lot of this work to study not only adaptation, but also maladaptation in this population. So there's something called chronic mountain sickness that is much more common among Andeans compared to Tibetan Highlanders, and there are a slew of unfortunate um, outcomes that are associated with chronic mountain sickness. And one of the key differences is this excessive urethrocytosis or this overproduction of red blood cells. Many of those have phenotypes that parallel those that we see in pulmonary disease. And we think this could be in fact attributed to some of these differences in the control of breathing. So we have done work um, with a number of investigators here at UCSD and abroad to look at this question uh, in terms of oxygen saturation and breathing. Uh, and we've even done sleep studies at night. And what we find is that the lower saturations are associated with higher hematocrit, um, as well as the time spent below a 80% oxygen saturation at night. So these things are likely contributing to some of the maladaptive phenotypes in this population. So switching gears back to the genetics, um, there were a couple of genes that I've mentioned so far, EPAS1, uh, which was identified as being intergressed from the Denisovan population in Tibetans. And then we found early stage selection of, of this gene in Andeans as well, as well as Eglin1. So this gene is associated with the hemoglobin in Tibetans. And then the variants that we've identified there 
are at low frequency or they're completely absent in Andeans. But there was some recent work done to show that, that in fact, there are variants at this region that are associated with exercise capacity in this population. So in addition to those very um, important genes in the HIF pathway, we have a number of other candidates that have come up in more than one study. And so these are all studies based on uh, the Tibetan population. But when we look in other groups as well, we can see that there are additional uh, evidence for targets of selection in these populations. And then to take that a step further, we even see that in high altitude species, um, including uh, deer mice and um, yak and even fruit flies that are studied here at UCSD. So now thinking about some of the work, not in the mountains, but actually within the seas. Um, so in our group, we have been able to look at carboxyhemoglobin levels in elephant seals. And specifically, this is the work of Michael Tift, who is a postdoc uh, in the lab and had done some work at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And what he found is that these elephant seals had carbon uh, monoxide, or the carboxyhemoglobin levels, that were comparable to a human cigarette smoker. Right? So these are extremely elevated in that population. Interestingly, one of the genes that we identified in Tibetans is this heme oxygenase gene. And this gene is involved in the breakdown of heme, and it's from the breakdown of heme that you get carbon monoxide production. So we all have that small amount um, of carbon monoxide that we produce. Uh, and one of the questions has become whether or not Tibetans are benefiting perhaps from these low to moderate levels of carbon monoxide in their blood. Now, I have been told that the Tibetans smoke so much because it, they say it makes them feel better at high altitude. I don't know if that's the case, but perhaps there is something to carbon monoxide. Um, there are a lot of studies now looking at the therapeutic potential of carbon monoxide, and there could be some interesting clues from these well-adapted species. Additionally, when we look at our Andean Highlanders, so this is Mike using the same exact instrument on one of our favorite participants uh, in Cerro de Pasco, Peru, uh, we see that there is in fact a relationship of increased um, carbo carboxyhemoglobin with uh, the total hemoglobin increase as well. Okay, so now I have told you about the work in the Highland populations, and I want to focus specifically on Melissa Alardo's work looking at diving populations, specifically the Baijiu uh, in Indonesia. And so this work was published just a few years ago in Cell. And Melissa went to Indonesia to collect samples from um, this population in addition to phenotype information. And one of her first questions that she wanted to ask was whether the Baijiu have larger spleens. And this is because they do very deep dives um, and are able to hold their breaths for extended periods of time. And so in other marine mammals specifically, there are enlarged spleens, which serve as a reservoir uh, for red blood cells. And so what she found, in fact, is that in the Baijiu population, uh, the spleens are, are quite a bit larger than what she observed in non-Baijiu. So these were neighboring populations who do not have the um, same history of, of diving like the Baijiu. And unlike our study, she actually just took a saliva sample. So she wasn't looking at hemoglobin concentration or, or any blood phenotypes. Um, but from the saliva, much like a 23andMe kit, um, she was able to get genomic information. And so she looked at some of the markers scattered across the genome and identified an interesting signal at the gene PDE10A. 
And this was among many different important targets of selection. But this one in particular, turned out, was associated with spleen size. So if you compare the number of adaptive genetic copies for this particular gene uh, in, in the context of spleen size, you could see that with more adaptive copies, the individual tends to have a larger spleen. Uh, her work now in animal models is suggesting that there is some increase in thyroid hormone uh, that is associated with the PDN, PDE10A uh, association. So a lot of this work that I've told you about, um, both by our group and by Melissa, is really uh, a focus of a center that we've developed here at UCSD. So this is a Center for Physiological Genomics of Low Oxygen. And again, we're very interested in looking at natural variation on the spectrum of adaptive and maladaptive phenotypes and genotypes, um, and hope to continue a lot of this work even across species uh, in order to better elucidate some of the changes that have happened in human populations in our evolutionary history. So in conclusion, we see that there are a lot of adaptive factors in Tibetans and Andeans. Some of them are showing up as the same genes, perhaps with different specific functional markers that are associated with key phenotypes. In the Baijiu, we do see that there is an adaptive signature that is associated with spleen size. And again, just important to keep in mind for all of these studies that there are these unique population histories that really help shape the variation that we see today. And I would argue, right, being cross-disciplinary in genomics and physiology that we really need to integrate across these fields. And so with that, I'd like to thank all of you for your attention, the participants that have been involved in all of our studies throughout the world, in addition to all of the collaborators. Um, they say that it takes a village. I say it takes villages all over the world to make this sort of research happen. So um, with that, I just want to thank everyone and hope you enjoy the rest of the symposium. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.